Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands for a long time after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge and stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day here at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now. Redfern is the birthplace of black theatre in this country, and it's a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. We have not been here together for a moment. A few weeks. A few weeks. So, obviously, there's so many things that we want to unpack. There's so many things we want to talk Mm. about. But that's... Probably not safe for work, so we're going to have to just (laughs) hold it together. (laughs) But there is something that I do want to discuss. I watched a movie last night. It's called Not Okay. It's on Disney+. Plus. It was probably, in a nutshell, my favourite take so far on influencer cancel culture. So it's... I know there's so much kind of like in the ether right now in the um, pop culture, film, TV space. Everyone's trying to do narratives and takes around what we're currently living in, which is a, a big thing that dominates currently at the moment in conversations is influences and cancel culture s type stuff. And this movie centers around a white female um, who is desperate for that influencer level of fame and attention and ends up doing the unspeakable in order to garner it. A little bit like, not like Spree, the Joe Keery film. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is a bit more of a darker take on it. This one is much more comedy filled. Okay. Yeah. Um, So there, but there is a lot more cringe in it. Mm. There is a heavy amount, heavy dose of cringe. We love to cringe. We love to cringe. Um, I love a self-aware cringe as well. <laughs> so I think that's probably why I do. I did enjoy this film. Um, but it really did get me thinking about the white gaze and how white people may associate themselves with marginalised people, the kind of co-opting of um, racial and gender identities by those with systemic power and how we as those that are being co-opted from, how we read when this occurs. I mean, it's definitely happened to me. And I know that when it uh, when it has happened in the past, there's a period of shame that comes when you feel that you've assessed it too late. Have you experienced this? I'm trying to pinpoint times where this has happened to me. I feel like it happens when, you know, you're having conversations around trauma or that, you know, you, know, you and I or like, you know, you and our friends, we... um. We, you know, for what, for in a tragic kind of way, we bond over the kind of traumatic collective trauma that mm. we go through, and then you kind of get external people or people who don't necessarily share that experience coming into the conversation and 
they just take up a bit of space that maybe they should be stepping back a bit. Mm. And then they use that in a sense of relationality with other people and like kind of co-opting that trauma into their identity or being like, you know, people use the word solidarity all the time, mm. but solidarity, what does solidarity look like? You know, what does it mean to specific people? How do you show solidarity without co-opting or without um, taking up more space than you're, than you're owed? Um, that kind of thing. Is that what you mean? Yeah, totally. And all like, because I also wonder as well sometimes, like if I have overshared in a moment, yeah. how is that being taken later? Like when I'm not present in the room, how has whatever I've shared been repackaged? Oh, because so many times I've been in conversations with people and they'd be like, oh yeah, my friend went through that, so I get it. Or like, mm. oh yeah, my, my, my friend's also, you know, Asian and, and gay and they said the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah. well, that doesn't make me connect with you any better. Oh, hundred oh, <laughs> Yeah. I'm like, remove yourself. Yeah, yeah. You're not like- a, Introduce not- me to your friend. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and it's also- um, because I always like wonder as well. I always have a little bit of anxiety around, particularly if I am being paid to pre- be re- a representative person in the room or whatever. Um, and, you know, you're talking around your lived experiences and it is purpose. Per- it, it has a point to whatever it is you're working on. And then I always get a little bit concerned after, because I always try to measure now in my late twenties, I definitely doing in my early twenties, um, Anyway, I always like have this kind of fear or anxiety around what's been taken from what I've said to someone that holds power and how they talk about it to other people in a sense of like, well, Sarah said this, so blah, 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 as a like a means for defense and an argument or, you know, and naming me or how they repackage it. Like, because I've, I've had people throw it at me, people with power that's like, I've said to them, I've disagreed with them on a certain thing in regards to something around, like, say, gender identities. And then they've come back at me and said, well, I've spoken to my non-binary friends and they said this. And then I'm like, I'm like, do they know mm. that you've said this? To, like, do they know how you've kind of taken their experience at, as a form of defence in an argument against me? Yeah, I get what you're saying now. In this, yeah. like, age of, like, visibility and conversations around visibility and hyper-visibility, everyone has to say something yeah otherwise it feels like they're erasing or like they're not acknowledging or they're not honoring but like in co-opting you're actually doing the opposite Mm, mm, totally i also i also you know get concerned for like you know my own old people like particularly like say my mother because i know that she come from a time where there was just like no access to spaces full stop um, she couldn't even get a leg in the door. And now we're in a time where, like, systemic power is, like, heavily interested in uh, our trauma and in our experiences that is inflicted. But they, they do it in a way where it's like, but it's not me. I'm not the one doing it. But I want to know how to help. Mm. And it's this weird, gross corporate um, age that we're in where it's, you know, trauma is currency. And, you know, they when I look at my mother and, like, you know, she went through a time where, like, that had it was just such a time of survival. But now she's in a time where people want to know and I get really concerned with her because I'm just like, don't overshare because, like, sometimes it's not in our interests. Like, they act like it's we have to really, really measure things differently now, I guess, where it's like, how do we read when someone is safe to kind of exist in that space with them and my story or my lived experience is not going to get co-opted when I'm not existing in the same room as them anymore. 
Um, so, and I guess that's very much this film kind of lightly touches on that a bit. It's very exaggerated. I was going to say, like, having not seen the film, but um, having hearing you talk about it, it kind of takes it to another level. I yeah. Feel. But that's kind of cool because it's like we're already on the precipice of that happening. Totally. It, you know, it probably already has happened. We just haven't heard about it. You know, these people yeah. faking um, literal collective trauma mm. on a public platform. I mean, it has happened to, you know, in different kind of varying degrees. But yeah. um we're there. Like, it, this is gonna, This is happening. This is happening. I yeah, feel yeah. like it's got to be one of those moments where it's like, you know, art imitating life or life uh, yeah. imitating art. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. So I think it's, yeah, the film definitely exaggerates it. The film does do a good point in not giving a redemption arc at all. Mm, how to, do you even come back from that? You cannot be re- redeemed. Yeah. For, uh... It's also an interesting take as well on... Um, when you do something horrible and then the pile, because we live in an age of pylons mm. because of social mm. media and, you know, you, that human empathetic side of you is like what you did was terrible, but also the pylon, does the pylon match the act? <laughs> I, I, I do. Oh, no! <laughs> I was going to say, watching a pylon sometimes feels good. Yes. Yeah, I hate to admit that. Yeah. But then I'm like, no, Step back. Yeah. Abolitionists. We don't we can't be piling on everything and everyone. No, like just don't send death threats. God, why who <laughs> just does that? Don't. You're just ruining it for the rest of us. <laughs> just a cheeky lol, like just a knowing lol or a knowing yeah. smiley face. We know what you did. Yeah. And then you, move on. Yeah, and then move on and then move on. And but move on. social media is a um cesspool of a mm. place. So that doesn't there's nothing constructive and there's no nuance there. But I don't know. These are the things that got me thinking about how we kind of um, measure when we're in a moment of someone co-opting our experiences as marginalised peoples, particularly when we're in a time where people with power or people that are influencers, you know, they're all garnering for the most amount of attention. And with that comes clout chasing. And are you in their path of clout chasing when that happens and how to measure when someone is coming towards you with good intentions or when someone's coming towards you for their own currency, for their own interests? Um, It's something we have touched on briefly in the past. I don't think we've really talked about it too much when it comes to influences and social media. I think it's also shifted a lot since 2020 Black Lives Matter like I I always think about that moment all the time and how when where we are now because I remember when it was happening in 2020 when the eruption happened and all black people all marginalized people like were sitting there saying this your interest in this will fade Mm. this is you 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 won't like you're all a part of it now but will you continue in understanding how to engage in this kind of dialogue, understanding how to unpack your own whiteness. You know how they've sustained it? They've turned it into an industry. They have. Yeah. They really have. The corporatization of activism. Mm, mm. Mm. It's fascinating. It's something that I think we probably need a whole episode to unpack. Yeah, let's save that for later. Let's save that for later. But yeah, I, I just, yeah, I'm just like thinking about all of our, all of the black and brown people in our lives and our listeners and just, you know, like, just like care for yourself if you feel that shame when you think you have overshared or you feel you've become um you've be- you've you've become co-opted by someone else for their cloud chasing. Cuz why that's not okay. It's not <laughs> It's not okay. Oh my god, I see what you just did. I did that. You did yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, you're on Race Matters right now on FBI 94.5. Later on the show, we're talking the politics of listening as a social practice. What does that mean? Um, I'll answer with another question. How does shifting the way we listen to music uh, shift the way we relate to each other? Uh, Sharika Heller-Luden spoke with artists Victoria Pham and James Nguyen about the work they've been doing to recover a Vietnamese drum called the Dong Son. How this led to their collaboration exploring ancestral instruments and breaking the glass cabinet of museums that take away cultural objects from colonized peoples. hyphenate individuals. I'm wondering how you would describe what draws you to your creative practices and your collaboration. Maybe we can start with you, Victoria. Okay, that's a deep question. Um, Well, for me, in terms of my practice, everything's centered around sound. Uh, So when I first started training or kind of delving into art making, I was working as a classical musician and hoping to be a composer. And that somehow led me into like electronic music making and sound design. And that then in turn kind of rolled on into working with um, visual artists, theatre makers and a bit with radio. So all of the work started being collaborative from the beginning. So I kind of had a basis for working that way. And I preferred working collaboratively to begin with. Uh, And then through that kind of sound world, I have a close friend of mine named Kezia Yap who is a composer as well, as well as a visual artist. And through Kezia, I met James and we met at this cafe in Surrey Hills. Uh, And then we started talking between the three of us about sound making, collaboration, history. And then I got to know James more and slowly that built into this collaboration and that is resounding um, now. And it's it's all because of through sound practices and and just chatting together and being friends. I'm a visual artist. Um, trained at the National Art School, so I know how to draw and paint. But I think at the end of the day, what I really got excited about when I make art, it's basically working with people that I really like and enjoy the company of. Um, I also make kind of short documentaries. And for all the time that I spent making them, the most important thing with any video or any moving image work is actually the sound. So you can make really crappy, images but as long as it's accompanied with beautifully produced sound it's a beautiful artwork but a really beautifully filmed thing with crappy sound is just crap (laughs) so yeah so I'm really interested in sound as well from that meeting you forged a relationship and have an ongoing body of work recovering the Vietnamese drum called the Dong Sun Can you take us through the process of being able to get acquainted with this object and growing your collaboration through this? Well, I guess um, both Victoria and I grew up with the mythology of this magical old ancient bronze drum like that our parents told us about 
but even for our parents they've actually never encountered like a physical object um, this physical instrument in real life so they've only seen photographs of it um and as people who are kind of like dispersed like refugees diasporic migrant people from elsewhere the irony was that the first time that my family and i saw our ancient instrument was in a museum at the met and then later on at the um, art gallery in new south wales um and i think victoria has a really interesting story of her first encounter as well but basically it's first seeing our objects not within the community but actually in a western museum yes <laughs> i had a very similar encounter so i happened to while i was doing my sound studies i happened to also be training as an archaeologist and part of that was working in collections and for me that was at the australian museum which is in sydney and in that collection is a dong syndrome so the first time i also encountered it was kind of filtered through the museum as a way to access our own ancestral objects and so james mentioned kind of collaborating and thinking about bringing this particular object which happens to be an instrument back to life hence the the title of the collaboration being resounding and then we just thought about how could we access it kind of getting around research protocols and that didn't become a possibility even though we had broached the topic with several institutions so james magically found one of these drums like on the private art market and bought one <laughs> in a kind of act of self repatriation and then we used that particular object to collect sound samples made stems collaborate with musicians and commission music for the object and that was kind of the foundation for resounding this single bronze drum yeah that idea of encountering ancestral objects through the mediation of a museum i feel like i really felt that dissonance just despite coming from a different cultural context and i guess i'm curious like once you got to like in your words like repatriate like the first drum what were like the textures and sensations that you felt when you first got to play around with the dong san for the first time yeah so i, I guess it was kind of like fun <laughs> because like the the thing is that you know like even when we have had access behind the the scenes at the museum it was only through being able to look at it we weren't even able to touch it with a glove um we, you know the the museum still owns the image rights to those objects and so when we think about the sound these objects have, have been sitting in these museums super silent right and so I guess when we first listened to it, like it was kind of like really incredible. Um, the kind of like the range that um, we could get from the drum because we were collaborating with um, a, a few other musicians. So so we had this like trio of amazing percussionists who experimented with the drum, and I drew out fifty-one sounds from a single percussive instrument. Yeah, and, and I guess by working with you know a group of other musicians and percussionists, like. We started to think about repatriation as not something that's like a singular object-focused thing. It's actually something that's spread. It, we can only achieve it via kind of like contribution of many others. Ultimately, returning or re-listening to these objects that are reclaimed is kind of like it's a, it's a shared reclaiming, um, and it's not even specific to the Vietnamese diaspora. It's with kind of like contemporary musicians in Australia, in Indonesia, you know, like punk musicians in Vietnam. And 
we actually was talking with one of our collaborators and um, Joel Spring, um, who helped kind of like create this amazing structure around the drunk to support it. And he introduced us to kind of like the term of rematriation, where it's kind of like a First Nations kind of like focus on not only object or the physical, but actually the spiritual, the cultural, the practice of sharing knowledge that's, that goes beyond kind of like this museum focus on an object is actually the, the intangible social kind of like um, sharing and production of noise and sound and memory and practice. process of unearthing, be it uncovering an instrument or uncovering forms of knowledge that were perhaps once lost. What are the decisions you make to ensure the extraction is one of care and not replicating colonial mod models of excavation and discovery? That is an excellent question <laughs> and it's kind of funny because because I'm trained as an archaeologist I kind of sit at a really awkward place in my research practice where most of archaeology is literally about kind of violating the surface of the earth and earth and exhuming these ancient objects and then collecting them and then shielding them from the public um, so in a way I saw the project as kind of disrupting that practice even though at the beginning most of it was driven by research because we really didn't understand that much about the drum beyond its mythology and most of how it's framed within these collections is ultimately colonial and what I mean by that is most objects in a museum are assigned like a single function or they're believed to have like a single purpose or use or for the most case when we look at a lot of cultural objects that aren't western they're assigned things like ritual function or ceremonial function which really was the drums kind of home within these western institutions um, most of the labels talk about the drum being used to call rain and, you know, the frogs on, you know, each side of the drum representing fertility and things like that. And those are very, like, common stereotypes that are assigned to objects that a, an academic who's most likely Western trained through, uh, you know, the history of anthropology and archaeology being so Westernized and so colonial, um, that's just what they believe other cultures are limited to or restricted to. So for us, through thinking and framing the project around rematriation and kind of releasing the object from its physical form into sound and collaborating with so many other musicians across Australia and Southeast Asia. That was our way of kind of contemplating the object beyond its assigned historical label and also actually making noise with it and disrupting the silence of the museum through that noise making process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think a big process of that was also the idea of gatekeeping. So for museums, um, they gatekeep and use the defence of protection and preservation to maintain culture and objects. But for us, we're human beings and upkeep is not that. Upkeep and maintenance is actually living. 
um, and sharing and kind of like providing different forms of access with the stems that Victoria produced with the musicians, like that was put online in kind of like an open source um, public forum where anyone can download and upload and start to mess around with the sounds, you know, like they're creating new satellite, you know, like um, new centers of kind of like um, knowledge and practice. I wanted to pick up a piece and like kind of bringing in your family and community and I guess the lived embodiment of like what it is to do this work. Um, so when you're doing the research, how do you make connections with the art you're making um, with the community or like the family members you've spoken about who have more of a, I guess, mythologized relationship to the drum? So the first thing was uh, James actually, well, when he purchased the drum, drove it up to Sydney at one point and left it in my mother's house. And my mother had like this whole spiritual epiphany with having the physical object in the house. She was still sort of mythologizing it at the beginning, but after about a week, she invited like the entire family and all these disparate members of the Vietnamese community that I didn't even know that we had as close friends to the house to look at it. And, I, and then it broke like the second boundary. People were really afraid to touch it because that's one thing we're taught, like preserving or conserving things in, again, in a very Western sense means that you don't access the object, you don't touch it. And then suddenly James and I, because James had purchased this incredible artifact, gave permission to have a tactile experience with the object. And that I think was a really important way to connect the art, to, to not make it about this conceptual project, but make it actually physically real, even though the project is about rematriation and about the essence of sound and the power of reimagining an object through sound, the physical presence of that object, I mean, it can't be understated. And that kind of extended to now that we have the opportunity to using the drum and bringing the drum kind of between exhibitions that are no longer digital or relegated to just an online experience and having the audience actually be there and play the instrument and touch it and getting people from completely different generations and backgrounds being able to access the object without its glass covering. I guess like to bring back to what we have actually been discussing is that idea of preservation. So it's kind of like institutional preservation versus kind of like shared community preservation. Um, and I guess what kind of like really was beautiful when we kind of like talked with um, researchers who actually spoke and read Vietnamese and actually had are able to access like Vietnamese texts like since the 1920s and 30s on on this instrument we learned that these instruments um, weren't just you know um, ritualistic fertility drums they're actually weapons of war right and so like all of these um, towns would have these huge drums and they would act as kind of like a sounding core to unite other tribes around to come and support a village that might be getting invaded. Um, and also when an enemy comes and to invade your land, you beat the drums as loud as you can to let them know that you're aware and you have kind of like military might kind of like and metal technology in which to fight and resist, right? And, and so it was kind of like this process of the drum being a weapon of war to call and unite everyone, but also in this process to bang it so hard means that you had to destroy it, 
this instrument, like this really important cultural instrument. It was essential that you destroyed this instrument to protect the lives and the culture of your village and your people. And so when this kind of like instrument that's been put into a glass vitrine for kind of like a Western perspective of preservation, that actually really completely diminishes kind of like its, its intentioned destruction. And so for us being able to share with our community and, you know, sometimes it's a bit scary, like putting the drum on the floor so that kids can beat it and play with it and touch it and everyone's sweat will add to the corrosion of this object. Again, you have to swallow your pride and your kind of like westernized, colonized mind to say, oh, this is okay. This is what the drum was intended for. It was intended for um, a sense of bringing people together, uniting people, giving them a sense of their own self-worth and pride, and also being able to let them imagine a future, you know, like a, a future beyond kind of like the violences that you are currently enduring or existing in. And so, yeah, that in a way, kind of like destruction is also super important in kind of like our, our cultural practice, right? step out a little bit from this project and ask more broadly about acts of listening. There is so much wisdom, as you kind of alluded to before, from first peoples across the globe on how deeper listening forms connection and transformation. How would you both speak to the politics of listening in your creative and social outputs? Um, again, with the archaeology thing with the research, I also sit at an awkward, I don't even know what to call that, point in in sound practice or sound art or music that I'm totally classically trained uh, as a pianist and a composer and then you know I went to the conservatorium and I did that whole thing um, and that kind of reinforced what James is talking about of like hearing things that sound out of tune but they're not actually out of tune it's just because my ears have been taught that that is the only way to make music or good music or right music or perfect music which is the kind of ideal that western art music pushes um which is very odd because when I was actually growing up I played a lot of Asian music so I was in a Chinese music ensemble as a kid and I did Japanese taiko drumming and things like that and that kind of disappeared throughout my education through high school and then through the conservatorium um, so in terms of the political acts of deep listening um during uh, university, I encountered the work of Pauline Oliveris, who I think many people might know her sonic meditations. And initially, that was a way to listen to technically Western classical music more deeply or learn how to engage with the practitioners from that kind of training. And then it kind of expanded further than that, because I reflected on it. And I realized that I had grown up Buddhist. And for the first 10 years of my life, I took like meditation classes, like uh, Buddhist meditation classes. And that was part of my life growing up alongside all that Asian musical practice that then disappeared kind of all at once. And then when through working with James and having these conversations, both of those things could have sort of joined together and arose again. So the politics of listening mainly comes from realizing that you need to pay attention to everything as evenly as you can. And by evenly in a technical sense, like all those things that Western art calls microtones, 
they're just like scale systems and sounds that are all equal to each other. There's no like equal temperament or anything that forms a hierarchy. You just have to pay attention to all attention to all practices and textures, and all these tones are totally even on the spectrum of sound. For me, um, listening is always paramount. And as I explained before, like even as a video maker, you actually focus on the sound. That's much more important. And for me, I've cried over music and song and cried over, you know, the sound of, you know, like my, you know, my grandma's voice, but not over like a picture of her or, you know, like I've never had an emotional epiphany in front of a painting or a video. <laughs> like, um, yeah, and so sound is, I think, inherently much more emotional and kind of like, because it's so abstracted, like it, it allows you a lot more kind of like freedom of thought. But whilst sharing the drum, like with, um, a kind of like political um, musician of a previous generation from the Vietnamese community in Adelaide. He told, he reminded me that all of our um, folk music, all of our folk songs are now played with guitar. They're all now played um, on music that's written in the Western notation. And when we hear our own music, our ears and the players naturally tune it to like a Western scale. And so because we're saturated in kind of like pop music that are all based on kind of like this Western tradition, um, when we hear our own music, it sounds completely wrong and out of tune and it sounds ugly, right? And it sounds wrong. It's just, just so wrong, right? And so we are kind of like robbed of our emotional capacity to understand and listen to our own songs because we've been so westernized right? then that's a huge travesty and so I guess Victoria and I started to have these conversations on how we kind of like can rip apart our own ears I guess. With all of that in mind there's an event coming up at the Sydney Opera House next week that brings together a lot of what you've been speaking through um, with a lot of workshops. Um, can you tell us a bit about it and why you chose to work with other artists? Um, so when we first thought of the idea of resounding, our dream was to do like live performances, firstly so that audiences could physically interact with the drum and hear it live and feel the kind of bodily connection you can have to sound in a space when it's involved with live performance or participation. Um, so that's but the first thing. And why we chose to work with other artists was because it was the opportunity um, for us to to retune, which is basically the concept of this um, of this uh, iteration of the resounding project. And because we didn't want to center it around just one object anymore, we wanted to expand the experience of listening in the way that we that I mentioned earlier about everything kind of being equal and we, that we need to retune or detune our ears from the single equal temperament system that Western music pushes. Um, it was the opportunity to bring in all these amazing collaborators that come from completely different musical traditions and cultures than our own. So it's a way to for also for James and I to retune our ears and have the opportunity to do that across the day. Yeah, and what's really important to recognise also is that, you know, like, you know, being an artist involved in your own project, you know, you're just becoming obsessed with it. And so it's 
really beautiful and liberating to realize that there are so many people waking up the dormant sounds of their ancestors and kind of like producing new forms of knowledge and living it and and working and kind of like evolving kind of like their practices and their cultural practices and then passing it on to like newer generations of of makers and you know to be part of kind of like something bigger like that I think it's like really important to re recognize right and so yeah we just have this privilege of you know bringing in like amazing artists that we respect and just to be able to sit together and maybe imagine kind of like a decolonial orchestra that we can kind of like fuck everything up with um which is kind of like super cool i'm kind of curious to know when you're working in a venue like the opera house that does that has kind of housed you know like music and art that can be exclusionary how do you go about creating an invitation for people to feel that they can be there and part of the process? Yeah, like I, I guess as, you know, like contemporary music or art makers, like we're constantly being in, pulled in multiple different directions and are constantly having to compromise. But I guess that's just part of living. You know, you take on whatever opportunities you have and work within the broken you know, complex spaces that we all live in. And it's because, you know, we we have strong ancestors, we can learn from them. And it's easy to be resilient in these spaces. You know, it's, it's actually really easy and fun to share space. Um, but also the musicians that we are bringing in, they have their own, you know, communities. And, and we rely on, you know, those networks to open up our, our audiences. Um, the other thing that I, and kind of like, you know, it's it's kind of like um, slightly dodgy, but, <laughs> but I made the opera house kind of like let, you know, 10 or 20 of my parents' friends in as performers, quote unquote. Um, and to bring them in, it means that they get, you know, like free tickets and a free meal. And, you know, for the first time in their lives, they're able to like go in the opera house rather than just like take selfies outside of it because it breaks that that barrier of, you know, prestige, you know, like um, in kind of like developing kind of like little works for them, like um, they're constantly thinking, oh, like, am I dressed properly? Like, oh, it's, you know, it's really appalling that these cultural spaces have, you know, like don't need to say anything, but, you know, it's like that meme where, you know, like, you know, say you're exclusionary without saying you're exclusionary, right? And so, so many people like in my family and my community, like it's great for them to take selfies outside of the house, but never inside because they don't feel rich enough. They don't feel white enough. They don't feel educated enough. And the thing is that they've spent thousands and thousands of dollars training their children to play the violin and piano so that their children has the capacity to enter and break into those spaces and we're the product of that you know and how do we start to think about repaying them you know like just doing kind of like dodgy shit but like saying oh yeah yeah um we're gonna have 20 performers um yeah let them in for free <laughs> that's kind of like our dirty little strategy that we won't tell people well as kind of an extension from that the actual event is entirely free as well um 
which removes the kind of huge economic barrier that you need to access anything that's happening in that building. You know, it's like, I don't know, $250 to get a seat to see the opera, which is insanely, you know, <laughs> that's way too expensive. So as a start, that's hopefully going to remove some of the pressure for some people to come in and experience music inside that space. Um, as a kind of less interesting response than James, because we're not having the event held in any of the kind of pre-established performance spaces, so it's not in the concert hall, it's not in the theatre, it's not in the opera section of the house. It's actually in the newly renovated Northern Foyer, which is kind of behind the concert hall. We don't have the pressure of having a segregation between the stage and the seating where the audience would normally have to experience a classical music kind of style performance. So instead, each of the workshops, because they're designed as sonic meditations to retune, they're also entirely participatory. And the mise-en-scene or the staging or whatever word you want to use means that the audience is invited to sit within the sound and make the sound with us. So they can bring instruments, they can sit on bamboo mats and, and these cool Vietnamese stools that you have at a barbecue <laughs> at your house that James is providing for people to sit on. So it breaks the kind of access point that maybe people feel like they need to be educated a certain way or they need to come in with pre-existent cultural knowledge about western classical music to access the stuff hopefully through the staging and the way that we're running the the meditations and the sets removes that sense of like intimidation that that building commands That is all for Race Matters this week. I'm Sada Khan. I'm Darren Lasagas. Thank you to Victoria Pham and James Yuen for sharing uh, about the work that they are doing in recovering instruments and the power of deeper listening. If you want to learn more and experience what they do, you can catch them at their event, Retuning. It's part of this year's Antidote Festival at the Sydney Opera House on Sunday, 11th of September. Retuning will take place as multiple sessions across the full day from 10.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. And we'll link the details in our show notes. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters.